you have your Bibles, if you would open them to 3rd John, the epistle of 3rd John. 3rd John, as is the case with 1st John and 2nd John, is written by the Apostle John, though he is not mentioned by name. It is among the shortest of the New Testament books. As we've seen, there are four uh, books in the New Testament that consist of a single chapter, Philemon, then 2nd John, 3rd John, and the book of Jude. Like 2nd John, it deals with the issue, I have in my notes problem, but I think it's more of an issue of traveling teachers and how they are to be treated. Both of these letters are concerned with truth and love and how they are to be demonstrated in hospitality. They are, in fact, the practical application of the theology we find in 1 John. Just briefly, we did this last week, but a brief review of 1 John, pointing to the connection with 2 and 3 John. It is an epistle that focuses on the three tests of the genuineness of whether or not a person is or is not a Christian. And we've not talked about this, but I don't think that First John is intended as a mirror in which we are to look to see, am I really a Christian? I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I, it can be used that way, but I think it's more for those who are coming in and making certain claims and yet saying things, doing things, living in a particular way that would make you suspect that they're not Christians. But who are we to judge? How do we know whether or not someone is a Christian? And so John talks about obedience, love, and faith, and specifically faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what 1 John is about. Now when we get to 2 and 3 John, these become the basis for making certain judgments about individuals who have come into the churches seeking shelter. I mentioned again last week, that the Roman Empire in the first century was a wonderful time in terms of travel. The, the Romans had built roads, the legion had built roads throughout the Mediterranean basin, and so you could get from point A to point B rather easily and rather quickly. They had the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, and so there was safety. There was a common language, Koine Greek, and so it's really unprecedented that people from all the different nations and all the different tribes around the Mediterranean could in fact travel safely and they could communicate because they all spoke the same language. This is one thing that made it possible for the gospel to spread as quickly as it did in the first century. There was a problem though, and that is where would you stay? They did not have a system of inns as we might imagine. There were inns, but they were really not places you'd want to stay. They were usually filthy, flea-infested, and ultimately, for some of them, they were houses of prostitution. So as Christians traveled, and particularly as those who traveled to spread the gospel throughout the Mediterranean basin, where would they stay? And as we see, and we'll see it later today, that uh, hospitality was commended and commanded that Christians were, in fact, if a Christian brother or sister needed a place to spend the night, you would provide that for them. Okay. We see this in the life of Paul. And again, I mentioned this last week. In Philippi, he stayed at Lydia's house. In Thessalonica, at the house of Jason. Um, in Corinth, he stayed at the house of Gaius. Uh, when he came back uh, to 
Canaan to Palestine. He stayed with uh, Philip the Evangelist in Caesarea, and then when he got to Jerusalem, he stayed at the house of Menasson, who was from Cyprus. So this was common. This was a common practice. But it was also open to abuse, that people would make the claim to be a Christian. In fact, they just wanted a free place to spend the night. How are you supposed to deal with such people? Are you supposed to show them hospitality? What about someone who says that they are a Christian teacher, evangelist, whatever, and they want a place to stay, maybe not just for a night, but for a period of time, and then they want to be able to teach in the local congregation? That's what 2nd and 3rd John deals with. And in 2nd John, uh, it's sort of the, the other side of the coin from 3rd John. That is, that John is telling him, you need to do this. And in 3rd John, as we will see, there is someone who, in fact, was doing this. So there are two sides to this uh, same coin. There are differences, though. In 2nd John, we have no names. It's written by the elder. We assume that that is John. And it's written to the chosen or the elect lady and her children. But in 3rd John, we have at least three people mentioned by name. Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. And the message is different. In 2nd John, the church is warned not to extend hospitality to false teachers, those who deny the incarnation. In 3rd John, Gaius is commended because he, in fact, has shown teachers of truth true hospitality, while on the other hand, Diotrephes is rebuked for not doing that and for what he has been telling people. We'll see this as we go along. There are three messages in 3rd John. First to Gaius, the first eight verses, and then not so much to, but it sort of is, but about Diotrephes, and then finally about Demetrius in verse, verses 11 and 12. So, Let's begin in verse number one. The elder to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. So we've seen the custom was to put the name of the writer at the beginning, except John does not identify himself as John, but rather as the elder. I find it somewhat striking because John was actually an apostle. So he very easily could have said the apostle, but instead he sees himself as an elder, someone who is a leader in the church. We were guessing, we're assuming that this is John, but the recipients of the letter knew exactly who was writing it. And he's writing it to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Now, there are a number of men in the New Testament with the name Gaius. It should not surprise us because Gaius was, in fact, perhaps the most common of all names in the Roman Empire. If I could just do a brief aside here. The Romans had the practice of having three names. I don't know if you know this. The first was called the prinomen, the nomen, and then the cognomen. Okay? The prinomen was a true personal name chosen by the child's parents. And it was usually governed by tradition or by custom. And it was usually, if you're the firstborn son, you had the same name as your father. And that's why you have Gaius all over the place, because... Fathers would name their sons after themselves. Nomen was the name, the middle name, de uh, denoting your clan or the family that you came from. Okay? And thirdly, you had the cognomen, which was usually the personal name. Um, 
and this is a bit tricky, but it's usually the more personal name, but the first name is the one that you're known by. It's also your father's name. An example of this can be seen in a familiar figure, historical figure, Julius Caesar. Uh, Julius Caesar was actually, his name was Gaius Julius Caesar. Julius was the name of his family, of his clan. Caesar uh, was the personal name. Interestingly enough, his father's name was also Gaius Julius Caesar. Um, So when we see Gaius here, it is the first name, but it is in fact a very, very common name. So for us to try to figure out who this person is, I don't think we'll be successful. John knows who it is. The recipient knows who he is. It is a man named Gaius. But he, in fact, is someone who is known as a dear friend. In the King James and other translations, you have beloved. Someone who is beloved of John. He is someone who John says, I love in the truth. We heard this, by the way, in 2 John. Uh, to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth. The truth is the gospel, the good news. The good news that John had spelled out in 1 John. And that's why I see 2 and 3 John as sort of the practical application, but the theology is there in 1 John. This is not mere sentimentality. Oh, my dear friend, beloved one. No, this is in fact the reality of the gospel. We are the children of God. We are brothers and sisters. And the mark of being a child of God is love. Verse 2 is the greeting. Dear friend. By the way, this is the second time. We'll, We'll see this one more time. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well. For the second time, John refers to Gaius as his dear friend. And in the greeting, he expresses his wishes or his prayers that you may enjoy good health, that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. And while this is sort of typical of the language of that day in ancient uh, times, as people would write their letters, some might see cause for concern. They're a little bit bothered that John is speaking about Gaius's physical and material well-being. We would like, we like the last part, you know, where he says that your soul is getting along well. Um, But some people are like, yeah, this doesn't sound very apostolic. This doesn't sound like what an elder would write, that I hope that physically and materially you're getting along well. Some would even say, I'm not sure that this is how a Christian should pray. The reality is there is absolutely nothing wrong with praying for a person's physical and material health. Certainly in our day, we get concerned because that seems to be all that people pray about. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. What John is doing here is entirely appropriate. The spiritual health of a person is important, but so is their physical health and their material well-being was reminded this week, the series that we did on miracles, how that when Jesus performed a miracle, it wasn't simply for the sake of that person's physical well-being. There was that. But there was also their spiritual well-being. And so in certain cases, Jesus would say, you know, you're healed, your sins are forgiven. People would freak out, who, who has the right to forgive sins? 
But there is a connection. Jesus wanted to talk to people. It wasn't just like, here, let, let me zap you and heal you. There is a connection between the physical and the spiritual. The evidence of Gaius's spiritual well-being is seen in John's rejoicing. By the way, joy is the noun form of the verb rejoicing. Look, if you would, beginning in verse 3. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell me or tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. From what we can reconstruct, apparently some of these traveling teachers, some of the brothers, had visited with John. But before coming to John, somewhere along their journey, they had stayed with Gaius, and he had shown them hospitality. We assume that Gaius and John live in two different towns or cities, and on their way, um, even going beyond John, but they stay with Gaius, and they also stay with John. And they tell John of Gaius' faithfulness to the truth, how he walks in the truth, he continues to do so, and how he was faithful in what he did for the brothers, showing hospitality, even though they were strangers to him. He didn't know them, but they said that they were brothers, and they were going around teaching the gospel, and he showed them hospitality. But then he also says about his love, that he had shown love for them. You'll note that there are recurring themes in this book, truth and faithfulness. Gaius was faithful to the truth. Gaius walked in the truth. He was faithful in what he did for the brothers. I would argue all of these are one and the same thing. They are evidence of Gaius's love. Because he is a believer, because God is love and he is God's child, he shows love. To review just a bit here what we saw last week, some people object to the fact of faith and love being commandments, that we are commanded to believe, we are commanded to love. And some people see this as, yeah, that you, you can't do that. You can't tell me to believe what I don't believe. You can't tell me to love someone that I don't love. And part of the reason for that is because in our society, faith is seen as intuition and love is seen as an emotion. And you can't command intuition. You can't command emotion. And so when we read First John, all these commands about love and about believing, we struggle with it. We push against it because it just doesn't seem right. Um, Christian belief and Christian love are a response to the revelation of Jesus Christ. God has sent his son. And in obedience, we believe in Jesus. And in obedience, we love the brothers. This is what we are supposed to do. Love has a moral content to it as does belief. Gaius is walking in obedience. He is walking in the truth, and he is walking in love. In verse number four, John says, I have no greater love than to hear my children are walking in the truth. If you go to Second John, also verse number four, we hear something very similar. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. 
Um, there is a difference. You will remember that in Second John, some of them are walking in the truth, which means some of them are not. There's also the business of Gaius and in Second John, the woman, the faithful lady, the chosen lady, and, and the word children, to refer to believers as children. And I think some people really push back against this. They're uncomfortable with it. It, it almost seems patronizing, if not insulting, to refer to grown adults as children. But I remind you what we hear from Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. And then to the Thessalonians, and we think this may have been one of the earliest epistles written. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. We should not forget that Paul and John, in fact, were apostles. Okay? They weren't simply teachers like other teachers. They had been given a very specific task. They are the foundation of the church. Um, it is interesting, as I mentioned, John does not refer to himself as an apostle here, but as an elder. But others recognize them as apostles. And Paul and John saw that they had a responsibility in dealing with the children, the people of God. They are to teach them, encourage them, comfort them, and to urge them to live the lives that they should. As a father teaches his children, it is very possible, it certainly was true in Thessalonica and in Corinth, Paul was the first one to bring the gospel there. And when people came to faith in Christ, in a sense, Paul is their father. He's the one who brought the gospel to them. I would assume the same is true here also with Gaius and the others that are mentioned in Second John. I do find it somewhat ironic that people will push back. I don't want to be known as a child. And yet they would very much want to be associated with someone, a person of power, of position, to almost say this person is my patron, my rabbi, if you wish. Um, then that sort of makes you the child, doesn't it? Uh, there's nothing wrong with being a child. We are the children of God, after all. I'm also struck by the reference to walking in the truth. And I mentioned last Sunday, I find this verb to be most instructive. To walk in the truth is more than just merely assenting to the truth. Yes, that's true. I, I believe that. It means that it is to affect our behavior. To walk in the truth means that there's no separation between profession and practice. What we say we believe and how we live should be one and the same because we are walking in the truth. There is to be an exact correspondence between creed and conduct. This was the case with Gaius, and that's why John is filled with joy. It brings him great joy to hear this. And in verse number five, again, he addresses him as dear friend. You are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. When John refers to Gaius as beloved and then writes of his love, um, this is something worth noting. It's something fairly significant. I'll mention two things, at least here. First of all, hospitality is commended and is commanded to all of God's people. I mentioned two passages last Sunday. 
Uh, Romans 12, 13, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. And in Hebrews 13, 2, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Let me mention two more today. The first is written to overseers or elders. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That's one of the requirements of an elder. But then, this I found, I guess I'd forgotten, but widows are commanded to be hospitable. 1 Timothy 5, 9 and 10. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Hospitality is to be the hallmark. It is to be the mark of all of God's people. Even those we think might be exempt, like widows. I mean, we think widows is, economically is sort of being at the bottom of the ladder. But they are to show hospitality as well. Gaius does precisely that. But there's something else I would point out to you. The word in Greek for hospitality is intriguing, truly intriguing. I think most people are familiar with the Greek word Philadelphia, loving the brothers, okay, philos or phileo, and then brothers, the Delphos. I think we are less familiar with the Greek word for hospitality, philozenia, the love of strangers, xenophobia, xenophobic, that stranger. Hospitality is literally loving strangers. That's quite remarkable. There are two passages in the Gospel of John that we hear that I think are really important in this regard. In Matthew 10, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. But this passage seems to indicate that you are showing hospitality to someone because they're a prophet, because he is a righteous man, because he is a disciple. So that, that certainly doesn't sound like strangers, okay? The second passage I think we might be more familiar with is Matthew 25. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. This is what we see in Gaius. We see him showing love for strangers. Even though they are strangers to you, John writes, he demonstrated the love of Christ 
by giving them shelter, giving them food to eat, and then sending them on their way. They have told the church about your love, John writes. But there's more. If you look at the end of verse number six, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. In other words, John's like, good job, guys, showing hospitality, demonstrating your love. You need to keep doing this now, okay? You will do well. You, know, you need to continue doing this. Past activities do not excuse one from future obedience. Guys can't say, well, okay, I've done the hospitality thing. Check that off the list. I'm good to go. No. John says this is something that you are continuing to do. And I think he may write this because of what follows. Uh, Diotrephes, as we will see, is forbidding people to show hospitality. He's excommunicating people because they show hospitality. And John wants to let Gaius know, no, you need to continue doing this. Verses 7 and 8. It was for the sake of the name that they went out receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. Three things are found here. First of all, Showing hospitality to these traveling teachers is a recognition that they are, in fact, brothers or sisters. And we should honor, we should show them honor because they are out there doing the work of evangelism. They are out there spreading the gospel. They are, in fact, doing it for the sake of the name. And the name is that of Jesus Christ, the revelation of God, the divine human person and his work of redemption. Secondly, John says we should have no expectation that the pagans will support this activity, nor should they. And then thirdly, in supporting these, Gaius is in fact joining in the work, joining in the work together with them. Yes, these evangelists, these teachers are going on their way, but because of what Gaius has done, he is sharing in the work that they are doing. Not everyone agrees. And so now we come across Diotrephes, verses 9 and 10. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. A new character is introduced. A man whose name is as rare as Gaius is, in fact, common. His name is Diotrephes. We, there's stuff going on here that Gaius must have known about. We don't. But apparently John had written a letter previously. And either it was to the church of Gaius or the church of Diotrephes. We don't know if they belong to the same congregation. Um, people have speculated, but that's all we can do is speculate. But John had written a letter, okay, and Diotrephes rejected what John had to say. He absolutely rejected what John had to say. And it may have been about hospitality. I suspect that it was, but we're not told. And Diotrephes is like, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and why did he reject John's authority and what he had to say about hospitality? He loves to be first. I think to understand this, we need to go back to 2 John, which we looked at last Sunday. In verse number 9, anyone who runs ahead 
John says. That those who claim to have superior knowledge, who, who claim to be more mature, to know more than everyone else. Yeah, this is Diotrephes. He sees himself as higher and more important and, one could even argue, having more insight about the commandments of God than John did. He wanted to have preeminence. He loves to be first. And because of this, because of this self-love, he will have nothing to do with us, John says. He was gossiping maliciously about John and the brothers. He refused to welcome the brothers, that is to show hospitality. He stopped those who wanted to show hospitality. And in fact, he put such people out of the church. Let's say a couple of the brothers come in and they're on their way to another province and they need a place to spend the night and you're like, yes, come in and stay with me. And Diotrephes sends a servant over or actually comes himself like, yeah, you shouldn't be doing this. And if you're like, well, I, I believe this is what we're supposed to do and you keep them, uh, next Sunday you go to church and you're not allowed in. You're kicked out. You are excommunicated from the congregation. On the face of it, this seems just be a pure power play on the part of Diotrephes. But in the process, there are a number of issues going on here, he failed to demonstrate obedience to the truth. He failed to show love by refusing to show hospitality. What we see in this man instead is self-love. And self-love has, I want to say the capacity, but it usually has the result of severing all relationships. Certainly the relationship between Diotrephes and John seems to be gone. He's given the cold shoulder to the traveling teachers, and then he has excommunicated his brothers and sisters from the church who wanted to show their love for the brothers by showing hospitality. Why? Because he loved himself more. He wanted to have the preeminence. If you look at church history, you will find that oftentimes the problems that arise in various congregations are the result of vanity, of self-love, that someone wants to have a higher position and it results in chaos. Now we have a message about Demetrius in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, dear friend, so there it is again, do not imitate what is evil but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Here the message is simple to this beloved, to this dear friend Gaius. Do not imitate what is evil. Diotrephes. Imitate what is good. Demetrius. Demetrius had in fact shown hospitality. Diotrephes refused. Anyone who does what is good is from God. That's Demetrius. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Sadly, this is the case with Diotrephes. We know why Diotrephes is someone not to be imitated. Okay? But why is Demetrius to be imitated? Verse 12. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. Three testimonies here, well spoken of by everyone, even by the truth itself. And thirdly, we speak well of him, and John says, you know that our testimony is true. Um, The one that gives everyone pause is the middle one, even by the truth itself. 
I mentioned last Sunday, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in 1 John 5, verse 6, it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So Jesus is the truth. The Spirit is the truth. Um, is that what John is saying here, that, that both the Lord Jesus and the Spirit testify that Demetrius is, in fact, a good guy? I think John's pointing in a different direction. Demetrius is living the truth. He is walking in the truth, and this testifies to the reality of his obedience. He is a child of God. And now this brief letter concludes. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. As is the case with 2 John, John has a lot more to say. He doesn't want to write it down. He doesn't want to do it in a written form. He wants instead there to be face-to-face talking. This a more satisfactory, can I use that word, form of communication. Spoken words are usually less likely to be misunderstood. You have, you know, you have, in fact... uh, Facial expressions, your tone of voice, maybe even hand gestures as you're speaking. Um, John, he needs to write this letter to encourage Gaius to continue. But when he gets there, uh, they, have a, they will have a lot more to talk about. And then John does something which is sort of the opposite of Second John, and that is he, in the, in the farewell at the end, he mentions peace. Uh, in Second John, it's there in the opening greeting peace to you. As I said, we would have expected this at the beginning. The night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus spoke to his disciples and said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The word in Hebrew is shalom. It is both a greeting and a farewell. So that it's at the end of the letter is not a problem. Okay, it's, it's not a problem because it's either you're saying hello or you're saying goodbye, but you're saying peace. As Jesus uses it, it is the night before his death. It is a farewell. But as we will see in a few moments after his resurrection, it becomes a greeting. Peace is one of the fundamental characteristics of the kingdom. Shalom has been described by one author as the way things ought to be. And the world cannot make things right. The world is powerless to give peace. There is enough hatred, selfishness, bitterness, malice, anxiety, and fear that every attempt at peace is quickly overwhelmed. Within the biblical framework, Attempts to achieve personal peace or even political stability without dealing with the reasons for that instability, the fall, sin, it's not pleasing to God. As Jeremiah wrote about false prophets, peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. The disciples lived in a world marked by the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It was achieved by the sword by the massacring of thousands of people. The Jews thought that was the way they would get peace too, by killing the Romans. And Jesus says, no, 
I will give you my peace. That's before his death. After the resurrection, when Jesus appears to his disciples, what do we hear? John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. I think that this word, this word of peace, is of great comfort to Gaius. Whether or not he's in the same town, the same church as Diotrephes, uh, it must have been discouraging that he, in fact, I mean, it costs to show hospitality. He's been showing hospitality, and then you have a brother. He's like, yeah, you shouldn't be doing that. That's not the right thing to do. And John says, no, you're doing the right thing. You're walking in the truth. You bring me great joy. Peace be with you. And then, as is often the case with the epistles, it isn't simply a person writing. There are other people there with him. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. It isn't just John to Gaius. It is John with the brothers who are with him. They are sending their greetings to this man, Gaius, who is faithful. So, if you were to ask me, we've studied 3 John now, if I could summarize 3 John in one word, what would that word be? By the way, this is something that I do oftentimes when I teach. I give the students a reading assignment, and I ask them, summarize the reading in one word or two words or three words. If I were to say, summarize 3 John in one word, I think the first inclination is to say hospitality, the love of strangers, because that seems to be the focal point here. For me, if I were to summarize 3 John in one word, it would be the word walk or walking. It is where profession and practice meet, where confession, the creed, and our actions are conjoined. Gaius is not simply a good guy because he shows hospitality. What we find is that his faith, his belief in the truth, and his love are being demonstrated in his showing hospitality. And Diotrephes apparently lacks any love, any affection for the brothers. And as John says, um, anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Diotrephes has missed the boat somehow. I think, and this is just my opinion, that many Christians do not think of their life as Christians as being a walk. I, I think that Sundays are times of great excitement when we worship and we sing together and, and then the rest of the week we just sort of coast and then we again we sort of spike on Sundays. And the idea of walking one step after another, putting one foot in front of the other, living the truth in our lives, That's not exciting, but it is the call. And that's what I see in 2 John and 3 John, the call to walk. 
to be faithful to the truth and to demonstrate the love of Christ in us to others, in this particular case by showing hospitality. But showing hospitality is not something exceptional. It's not something out of the ordinary. It's part of the day-by-day walk. And this is what John is saying to Gaius. And may we take it to heart. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we like spectacle. We like the unusual, the out of the ordinary. We seem to remember such things better than what we had for lunch two or three days ago because lunch is lunch. It's what we do every day. But your call to us is to be faithful step after step after step. We are to walk in the truth. We are to believe Jesus is the Son of God, that he loves us, that you love us by sending your Son. You've proved that love. And we are to love as well. Every day, every step of the way. We thank you for Gaius. One day we will meet in heaven. This man with such a common name was a man who was marked by love and faithfulness. And we are grateful for him. I thank you for these two brief letters of John's, how they instruct us. And the words of James, may we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. May our practice match our profession. I thank you for bringing us together on this Sunday, the beginning of a new week. May we have a sense of your presence by your spirit as we walk through the world in the coming days. We thank you for your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.